0: Hi, I'm Niklas Haring from the Center of Collective Action and Research at the University of Gothenburg. Uh, With me today is Malcolm Fairbrother from the Department of Sociology at the Umeå University and the Institute for Future Studies in Stockholm. Malcolm, very welcome and thanks for joining us. I'm very pleased to be here. Today we're going to talk about environmental and climate policy acceptance and demand, to what extent people demand climate policy from their leaders and when and un- under what circumstances they accept policies when such are imposed, uh, where Malcolm has written a number of, of very interesting studies. So just to start off the conversation, how come you became
1: interested in this in this research field? I got interested in environmental issues when I was quite young. Uh, I grew up in Western Canada and at the time I was uh, a teenager sort of first got exposed to public issues. I think the biggest environmental issue at that time was uh, deforestation in the part of the world where I was living because Canada had a lot of old growth forests and uh, the industry was uh, making a lot of money. But around the time I was a teenager, that was when there was really an environmental consciousness about the harm. And that really was one of the first major public issues I got exposed to. And from there, it was a very short kind of leap to get into other sorts of environmental problems, like climate change was uh, was just getting onto the agenda in that period, sort of early to mid-1990s, I would say. And then in my research career, uh, I'm a comparative political sociologist, so I study how uh, political affairs kind of you know, play themselves out differently in different countries and why countries end up where they are on many different political issues. And uh, I studied globalization and various other kinds of political topics, but I was always interested in the environment and I always sort of knew that I would come back to this. And so then in the last few years, I was able to sort of join up some of the other things I was studying back to environmental issues. And now, uh, as in many other fields, uh, it's a bad time for the world, and a great time to be a social scientist. So we have lots of things to study in the world of environmental politics.
0: Okay, as a then citizen growing up in Canada, and now as a researcher studying these issues, how do you think that the way these uh, questions are discussed, the way we do research, how has
1: this changed over the years? I mean, I think we have. Um, we have amazing new data, we have amazing new techniques. I think there's a lot of recognition that uh, across different social sciences that different fields have something to contribute. So I would say um, environmental social sciences are maybe the area where economics, political science, sociology, geography, anthropology, psychology, science communication, all kind of actually aren't that different from each other, which is kind of, I think more, it's more obvious how different they are in, in other fields. So for me, I work in a very interdisciplinary kind of way. And uh, I just have seen a lot of collaboration sort of emerging in the last few years across disciplines. And in some ways that's just make it made it clear how um, we still don't understand some really important things. But on the other hand, uh, it's a great time to be working in this area. Yeah, uh, interesting. One big
0: question uh, that you also state in, in, in one of your papers, and that is why is the public support for environmental protection uh, so weak? Where you highlight that most people are concerned about these issues, uh, they, they believe in climate change, but still they don't really, they don't really support the policies. There's a gap
1: there. Uh, what are your perspective on that? I mean, I think if you look at most political issues, not just the environment, you can really get people to express contradictory things if you ask them different kinds of questions, right? But in a lot of areas of politics, you know, there are very firm public commitments about specific things, right? So if you ask people in Sweden, you know, should we completely get rid of um, public funding of healthcare? You know, very few people, if anyone, is going to agree with that. So there are are really clear kinds of political points of view on, on certain kinds of questions. But when you come to the environment, I think from, you know, what I see of surveys from countries all over the world, there aren't actually very many people who, who are totally dismissive of environmental problems. And that includes climate change, right? So if you survey people, most people around the world believe climate change is real, it's, caused by human activity and it's a problem. But from there people get very confused and I think the majority of humanity doesn't really know what we should do about the problem. Um, You know one one school of thought says well we just live far too affluent lives or at least you know people in the world who are rich live far too affluent lives and they really need to just sort of basically live poorer lives uh, you know that's a very common point of view when I talk to certain certain people. Um, other people you know are a bit more sort of technologically optimistic they really think uh, they, they think about environmental issues largely in technological terms and they think of like you know fancy new things like electric cars and maybe that will transform things and you know coming at it from the social sciences one of the things I find it's very hard to get across to the general public is the environment is an intrinsically economic issue and it's an intrinsically political issue so it's really a question of how much money do we have to spend in a sense to solve any given problem because pretty much any problem we can solve is just a question of how much money it costs and how do we allocate the cost and that really is a political question and it's just do we allocate the cost to future generations? Do we make them pay for our lifestyles today? Do we make poor countries pay effectively for the affluent lifestyles of people in rich countries? Um, do we allocate the costs more fairly internationally? Within countries, how do we allocate the costs? Do we throw this onto taxpayers? Do we somehow make consumers pay more? That's, that's I think, the the biggest challenge. But those get into extremely subtle questions of... of policy design, economics, um, ethics, uh, psychology, consumption and you know the reality is most people don't have at all a clear idea what we should do about that. So I I think the the real question is um, how do we strike a balance between public involvement and input and the democratic right of people to have a say about these things with the fact that these are extremely technical topics that you can only really get your head around if you spend a lot of time thinking about them and studying them. You know, technocracy versus democracy. That's a, a really tricky question.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely agree that this is about very technocratic issues, and it's about uh, uh, trust in the in the political system. Um, and where I know that you have uh, been focusing on a lot of on distrust and the lack of support for the political system and so forth. Um, is that what can explain this gap between the, the the concern for the environment and the climate and the low
1: support for policy? I would say so. I mean I, I think um, you know from research that I've done and other people have done including you, uh, I think that the the lack of trust people have in uh, critical, major social institutions, particularly the political systems of their countries, but not only the political systems, also the mass news media, um, major environmental organizations, even in some ways the private sector. Uh, I I think people, people have a very suspicious attitude towards things that, they should be a little bit suspicious of, but not quite as suspicious as they are. And that's really preventing people from recognizing opportunities to deal with environmental problems and other kinds of problems. So I think of trust in a, in a very concrete way uh, with daily life examples, right? Um, well, I'm sitting here in this building right now. I have to trust that you guys aren't going to, you know, kill me and take my money before I leave this room. I have to trust that whoever built this thing over my head knew what they were doing, weren't incompetent, didn't, you know, skip work early so they could, you know, go have a, a nicer lunch. That they knew what they were doing. Um, if I ride the bus, I have to trust the bus driver. I have to trust other drivers on the road. We trust people over and over and over in our daily lives in innumerable ways and obviously sometimes we shouldn't trust people Uh, but we have to make continual guesses over and over in our daily lives should I trust this person should I trust this person should I trust this person and in a lot of ways we get it right but you can always get it wrong you can choose not to trust someone you should trust and you can choose to trust someone you shouldn't and I think when it comes to environmental policies that governments put in place they work phenomenally well there are actually very few instances in history where environmental policies failed or were dramatically abused and so we should actually have a lot of confidence when governments put these policies into place but when you describe a lot of things to people they are very suspicious and therefore i think we're missing opportunities to make gains on environmental issues because people are making a a cognitive error a mental error and they're they're not trusting things that they should I think that you say something that's really really important because
0: we know that political trust is important for this uh, policy area we need to to trust the system in order for it to to work Uh, but at the same time we know that people for good reasons don't trust politicians, uh, they don't trust uh, uh, business actors for good reasons, they don't trust uh, the public administration for good reasons, they might live in very corrupt environments and so forth. So how do we actually interpret these results? We know that for example political trust is uh, is important uh, for climate policy acceptance and climate policy support. How can we think of political trust. Is it like as we in research often talk about is is it a linear relationship that more and more and more trusting individuals, that is what we want, because then we will have more and more acceptance of these kind of policies? Or is it is it a certain threshold that is important that people to some extent put some kind of confidence in the in the system but they are also critical and we don't want We of course don't want bad climate and environmental policies. So citizens being able to criticize these, and so I don't know if (laughs) where this uh, question is leading, but we normatively we don't really want uh, like a North Korean political trust. That's not the ideal. So I assume that you (laughs) (laughs) agree. But uh, so we want the active citizens, not (laughs) just trusting their leaders, right? So
1: I mean, I guess. I mean, for me, when I look at... Yeah, you're right. Let's take this to the logical extreme, right? Let's imagine a society where people blindly trust their leaders and public authorities. No, we don't want that. Um, I guess my sense is that in non-democratic societies, it looks like people trust their leaders, but they probably don't trust them as much as they say they trust them, because they have to say they trust them, right? You're afraid not to express trust in leaders um, I think the the secret to the maintenance of non-democratic repressive systems is that you're not allowed to express what you really think and so I think full uh, freedom of expression and transparency and a vibrant news media and civil society and all the new media that have come you know come along you know in our lifetimes with the internet I think these are I think these are good things um, and I think, I think one thing that gives me hope about a lot of issues is that I think the youngest generations who've grown up with a lot of these new media are very, um, they're actually quite savvy about how to judge truth claims that they come across on social media, for example. Whereas in a weird way, older generations who've moved on to social media uh, in their lifetimes, I think have not really calibrated their judgments quite right. Um, And so, you know, on environmental issues, we see a kind of generational, uh, generation gap in how people respond to new information or what they support. And I think in a way older generations haven't quite got it that like you have to be a bit more critical with stuff that's pushed towards you on Facebook or whatever. And, and I think that's part of the problem, and why older generations are actually, in some ways, um, the most skeptical about a lot of uh, environmental information that's out there, whereas younger generations, I think, are perceiving it more, more accurately. So, you know, to bring it back to your question about, you know, in a sense, appropriately critical citizens, Um, I think one piece of good news is the appropriately critical citizens are the younger generations who are going to be um, taking over the you know controls of society in the the decades ahead Um, and I guess I would look to them as a good model of how you balance a certain level of skepticism um, with a certain measure of judicious acceptance of what Information can be communicated out there. I mean, let's take a really salient example this week, right? The Japanese government has basically just said they're going to have to release some huge quantity of water from the Fukushima um, nuclear plant that melted down, um, you know, a few years ago, and they're basically going to have to take radioactive water and just release it into the Pacific Ocean—a huge quantity—and I am not an expert on nuclear waste. I'm not an expert on nuclear energy. I can't really judge how bad and how worried I should feel about this issue. So what can I do to decide who to trust on this? Me as a university researcher, it's a little bit easier for me to judge this because I know how some of these kinds of institutions work. I know what kinds of organizations are likely to have the intellectual and financial autonomy to be able to say what they really think about these kinds of issues but if i'm not an expert on this kind of stuff and i have no connection to scientific fields and public administration and so on it's probably very hard to know what information i should really trust and whose voices i should trust so what i would really like to see in society is critical citizens who maybe get the skills to know how to recognize a trustworthy voice and what voices are not so trustworthy and like i say in a in a weird way what gives me hope is that i think the youngest generations are actually a little bit better at that <laughs> Uh, lovely that
0: you have this optimistic view that you believe in the in you know, younger generation. I don't want to
1: overstate it. I'm not <laughs> saying that you know older people never get it right and younger people always do but but you know as a tendency I, I've noticed this and there's actually some research that shows um you know people have done experiments when they've sort of given people like in a sense artificial fake news on social media and younger generations are a little bit better at identifying it yeah. Um, I wanted to pick up on something else you said there
0: about people in some countries might say they trust their uh, political institutions and so forth, but they might not actually do that. They, they feel maybe forced to say that they do that in, in a survey and so forth. And that leads me to a question about these international survey that we have there and the data we have. We say that trust is important for a number of things, but can we trust the surveys on
1: trust? Yeah um i mean i always say that trust is like the perfect social science concept right because it's immediately intuitive it's something that anybody can kind of understand but at the same time it's just it's a little bit nebulous and you can never totally grasp what trust is and so you can always do more research on trust and there's a huge research literature on on many different aspects of trust and as i said before i think about trust as applying from really huge sort of macro social political issues to like people's daily lives Um, you know there's so many different aspects of it as of a topic so we do these surveys you know we want to find out what is public opinion about x environmental problem or x environmental policy uh, or controversy and you know for statistical reasons it turns out that about a thousand people is a really good number to get a, a you know reasonably confident estimate of what national public opinion is so we go around the world we get these 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 surveys, about a thousand people in, in, you know, a country or maybe 50 countries if we're doing a really big international survey. The reality is we're always trying to economize, right? So we're always trying to find ways of getting as much information for as little cost, because surveys can cost a lot of money. I have the same doubt in my mind as you do. Do we sometimes know exactly what people are thinking when we give them these survey questions about some environmental problem or some environmental policy? We don't know exactly how people are interpreting it. And if you translate that survey question into 50 different languages, of course it's gonna have slightly different connotations in different countries. But when I look at the state of the literature on the topics we've been able to investigate, I think some pretty clear messages come out. And it's pretty clear that there are things that work very s- similarly in you know every country where we do the study. And on the other hand, there's things that work kind of differently in different countries. And I think, any one survey is not necessarily going to put my mind at rest that that we've figured it all out but because we can achieve a relative consensus on a lot of things and then we can match up what the surveys are telling us with other sorts of world affairs um, you know, I, I, I think we're... I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. So, I don't know, like like take the example of the, the gilets jaunes phenomenon in, in, in France, the yellow vests, right? Well, The gilets jaunes kind of illustrate what I was saying before, that I don't think if you look at what they're saying, um, they're not hostile to environmental protection. I don't think they're particularly ignoring climate change as an issue. They're just protesting against a tax increase. They don't want to pay more taxes on gasoline and diesel for their cars. And, you know, part of me is sympathetic to that. I mean, there's a lot of people who are in life circumstances where they need their car. And of course, they don't want to pay more taxes. Um, what exactly do they think? I don't know. I think the, that movement has been kind of confused. But I think if we match up the surveys that have been done in France, yeah, you can see that a lot of people in France are angry about taxation. They're angry about issues of inequality. Their president isn't always on message when it comes to seeming like a man of the people. We can see that in surveys. Um, And then we can see it in the streets. And we can read about what the Gilets Jaunes are saying in interviews to journalists in, you know, dozens of cities across France. So, you know, it's, it's not a perfect correspondence, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think that one
0: important thing that you have shown with your research using these international surveys is that there is a a relationship that has been shown in a lot of literature showing that left-leaning individuals or liberals uh, in some contexts are more in favor of uh, government intervention and in the form of climate policy and environmental policy, while Right-leaning individuals are often more uh, against that th- these kind of policies, and this is something that makes sense from how we understand uh, left and right ideology. Right, that people uh, on the right are less in favor of government market intervention, while people to the left are more uh, comfortable with that, thinking that redistribution and so forth is important, and and uh, the government can be a way to uh, to do that. Um, and I think that there's definitely been uh, a bias in the literature with many studies from the u.s showing that but you uh, in your research have shown that uh, well when we use these broad international surveys we don't really find that relationship everywhere and that is kind of uh, puzzling right because we, we we would think that this ideological divide would explain positions also in other contexts so why isn't that
1: yeah i think um I mean, right now, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm originally from Canada, and Canada is, is just having a, a national election. Well, have an, we'll have an election next month, and so the, the parties are campaigning. And there's this perfect array of parties on the left-right spectrum, exactly how you just say, right? So, so the most left-wing parties have the kind of most ambitious agendas on the environment and climate change, and the more conservative parties, it's the opposite, with a, you know, a kind of fringe nationalist populist party basically being full-on climate denialists. Um so in some countries, this sort of left-right spectrum lines up perfectly with environmental issues. But then, you know, but it doesn't line up so perfectly in some other contexts. And and partly that's because, you know, the very meaning of left and right, you know, you can argue about what exactly is the sort of core political value of the left or the core political value of the right. I think that the two things that most people would kind of say are are the key dividing lines are you know, what role you see for the government in society. Are you comfortable with a big government or would you really like a small government? And then maybe, you know, insofar as you have to, to, to sort of trade off in, you know, some people would say um, equality and individual rights. You know, the left is a little bit more on the side of equality and maybe the right in some ways is on the side of, of individual rights. I'm not saying I'm totally comfortable with that, but I think maybe those are some ways we could we could break it down. I don't think the environment has to be a left-wing value. I think it can be. Um, I think mainstream environmental economics, political science, sociology basically says, you, know, you can't just sort of leave environmental problems to the market. You can't leave environmental problems to individual people to solve. You need the government to kind of coordinate a social response to environmental problems. Um, your whole research center is kind of all about that. Uh so so yes you need government intervention but frankly there's lots of things that conservative people care about you need government intervention for too if you're a law and order person who wants more you know police on the streets that's a government intervention if you're uh you know a hardcore national defense military person well the military is a government intervention so conservative people sometimes are are quite pro government i would say um, and when it comes to the environment, the things that that governments have to do to solve the problems are not necessarily so big scale. Some really uh, clever uh, regulations and maybe some you know policies that kind of touch on other domains like industry or taxation. These aren't really huge interventions in the grand scheme of things, and they don't actually have to make society more equal. I would like them to I am personally a left-wing person and I always say I'm in favor of government interventions that reduce divides between the rich and the poor that's a core value of mine but I don't think environmental interventions necessarily do that I mean some environmental interventions could actually widen the gap between rich and poor so if you apply certain kinds of green taxes um, without compensating for them they would actually probably hurt the poor more than they would you know sort of burden the rich Um, most of the time when governments actually introduce new environmental policies as as I'm sure you know they actually compensate for that effect and it's not actually hard to do that Hmm. Um, but personally I don't see anything intrinsic in environmental protection that has to be a left-wing concern yeah I think historically it's evolved that way but I think that's kind of an accident of history I think I definitely uh, agree
0: with you there. That it's not protecting the environment uh, is not uh, a left-right issue in itself. But uh, if we look at some countries today, like the U.S., would be like the, the main example there. We see a great polarization, where it's historically it's been even. Republican presidents and the Republican Party uh, have introduced uh, environmental legislation and so forth. But today it's very, very polarized. And it's polarized around an issue that I think both you and me understand as a, as a collective action problem. It's something that all individuals are uh, have an interest in trying to save this resource. And then we see this great polarization in some contexts where this is linked to several other political dimensions, such as nationalism and so forth. What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way I think about this is, if you look at pretty much any environmental issue, it's going to be tied up with the productive activity of some industry, right? So it's about consumption. It's about what individual you know, households or families do uh, in consuming products or services. But there's an industry that's gonna be affected, right? So take it to a, you know, again, my, my you know, consciousness was formed in Western Canada. You have little towns in some cases, and actually I think this applies in Sweden too, um, where you have essentially one industry that dominates the local economy. Maybe it's a mine, maybe it's fishing, Maybe it's uh, uh, forestry, something like that, right? Most people are either working in that industry or their jobs depend on the, the sort of dynamism of, the, of that local industry. And then some environmental scientists or organizations or maybe uh, you know the, the Ministry of Environment in your country come and say, you know what? It turns out that your industry, you're producing a valuable product, people want to buy it, but it turns out that you're actually doing a lot of harm to this other value, you know? if you cut down all those trees, that bird species over there is gonna be gone forever. Uh, If you keep fishing at the rate you're fishing, the reality is you're only gonna be able to do that for a few more years and all the fish will be gone. And so every time somebody raises uh, a concern about an environmental problem, you pretty much have to take a strike at some industry. And everybody works for an industry, right? So everybody says, Oh, I really don't want that to hit me. You know, my community is going to be really affected by that. But the benefits of imposing that environmental policy to society as a whole, including everybody, are going to be huge, right? And so you have this dynamic where every individual industry and and little community that's based on an industry resists the environmental intervention of a government because they don't want to take that hit. And that's very human. That's very understandable. But the reality is, as a, as a society as a whole, we need to make those interventions, because if we let every individual industry get away with all the things it might want to get away with, we're all going to get cancer. You know, we're all going to burn up our natural resources way too fast. We're, we're not going to find new technological ways of doing things that are healthier, that are less polluting. And, and so we need to find a way to impose these interventions that have a social benefit without doing undue harm to the minority of people who are going to suffer with the new intervention. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very clearly, but but I think industries need to accept that they need to evolve. Mm. And if they can take the long view and recognize that we're all going to want to continue consuming lots of different goods and, and services, and we're all going to continue um, doing jobs to produce those things, um, you know, it's going to be okay, but there's disruption. So if I'm living in a town uh, that's based on fishing and the fishing industry has to get shut down because we're running out of fish, of course, that's going to be horrible for my community. And so I think it's a totally appropriate role for government to help people get past the introduction of an environmental measure that is going to be costly for them. Yeah. But you, like I say, I think it's very important to take the long view.
0: Yeah.
1: Very interesting. So
0: um just want to uh maybe round up this discussion by asking you about the future you had a uh, optimistic view on the younger generations being much better at dealing with information from different sources and so forth but i think that our conversation has also pointed out some things that could uh, make you a bit less optimistic you talked about uh, now the the people will make sure to protect their own self-interests in these industries, in these small towns. Um, uh, We talked about trust before and we know from the data that trust in the political system and uh, trust in other actors is declining in some societies. We have low trust in many, many societies. At the same time, we have these huge task ahead of us where we as you say mainstream uh, economics political science sociology and so forth think that government intervention is necessary we need we need coordination by some actor and how can we how can we that that's a, a more pessimistic view on it how, how can we uh, make sure that we, we will be able to overcome this and
1: yeah i i mean what I would say is I'm optimistic that sooner or later we'll get to these solutions. Um, you know, we'll get, we'll get interventions we need. Um, what I'm less optimistic about is that we'll do it fast enough. You know, yeah. I think the reality is as the environmental problems pile up, and they will, uh, you know, people will realize the urgency of taking these actions. Um, unfortunately, they may pile up a lot, before it really becomes clear and people people take this seriously enough um, and so the tragedy about that is that if we just took action now we could save a lot of money right so if we did all the right things immediately in the long run that would be far cheaper for humanity hmm. you know if we recognize that you know younger generations and including people who haven't even been born yet have have value, it's clear that what we should really do is take aggressive action now. And the thing that a lot of the public doesn't understand, you know, I was talking earlier about the things that people don't really get because they're not specialists, but if you are a specialist, you kind of understand. One of the things that specialists get is that solving a lot of these problems is not as hard or expensive as a lot of people think it would be. So if we did the right things, of course, we'd have to take a hit to our um, incomes and maybe our freedom to do certain things now, um but not that big of a hit and in the long run we'd save so much money so so i'm a bit optimistic and i'm a bit pessimistic we're going to we're going to we're going to make a mistake it's going to cost us money that's the downside the good side is i feel like sooner or later we'll 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 get it and we'll we'll solve it it's just a question of how how much of a price we're going to pay um, there's an idea I came across recently which I, w- I would like to explain as, as something else that I think is very intriguing and gives me a, a little bit of hope because it's a it's a fascinating concept of a way to maybe get out of this conundrum, which is the following. Um, if you look at most societies over you know recent history, standards of living have gone up. You know there are countries that have gotten poorer, but not very many. Most countries get richer over time. And it's a pretty mainstream, fairly confident economic prediction that standards of living will continue to go up. Maybe a lot, maybe a little, but they'll probably go up. Um, So one idea people have for solving really big environmental problems, and climate change is is number one, uh, is to say, well, let's take the actions, and if they have a cost, let's let the future generations pay that economic cost yeah so the idea is that effectively we would borrow money now do the right things environmentally and then leave the debt for future generations to pay because they're going to be richer than us it's an amazing concept so we could actually do the right things to leave them a better world and they could compensate us for the effort by paying the bill yeah. now there's a huge question of how institutionally we could make that happen but in principle I think it's a fascinating idea and if we could get that idea across to policymakers and maybe the public um, you know maybe that's a way to get out of this 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 sort of stuck place that we're in right now um, I am a little bit agnostic whether the levels of public and political trust are there to make it happen yeah. uh, but but I do think it's a fascinating possibility and it's an idea I'd like to I'd, I'd like to get out there more for people to think about
0: yeah fascinating just uh, one final question uh, to you as a researcher what which question is bothering you most right now
1: where do you want to find an answer I mean right now what I I'd, I'd really like to understand more is what is it exactly people trust and don't trust about their political system. So as you said before, we use these single survey questions. We ask people, you know, how much do you trust the parliament? How much do you trust politicians? You know, we get give people the option to answer on a scale from 1 to 5 or 0 to 10 or something. And you know, this clearly tells us something and there's all these patterns in the data which we can see regularly and therefore it's getting at something. But what exactly is it that people think we mean when we use the word trust in that context? And what exactly are they thinking about when they answer some of these questions? I'd really like to unpack that a little bit more because, you know, when I have conversations with people, their their thinking about these kinds of issues can be extremely subtle. And so I said before, I think the public can be very confused, but at the same time, a lot of people in the public have a lot of ideas about about these things. And so, I think. Um, you know with more research and more uh... more surveys and you know and maybe using other things like focus groups uh... i think i think we could probably get a much more detailed and nuanced picture of, of how people think about the political system and how people think about who to trust and who not to trust and what messages to trust and not trust
0: Yeah. I definitely agree with you. Maybe we can do it together. I think that would be a great (laughs) idea. So thank you, Malcolm Fairbrother, for having this conversation with us.